So John 10.10, something that we kind of use as our mascot scripture, says this. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come so that they may, they, us, may have life. I want them to have it in the fullest possible way. So I think probably the most practical definition of what a thief does, the most functional definition of what a thief does, is a thief separates us from what we value, right? And maybe even from who we value. So if you've been around here for any amount of time, then you might have heard me share this story before, but in 1991, I was a junior in college and my best friend was getting married and I was one of his groomsmen. And uh, he was getting married in Kansas City, Missouri, and we had, uh, as good college, uh, Bible college students would do, we didn't go out and do a traditional uh, uh, bachelor party and do naughty, bad, sinful things. We played basketball in the church's gym till like midnight. And then we decided we were hungry. Now, the wedding was the next day, and we were going to go downtown to get something to eat. And so we did, and um, we were in the heart of downtown and at midnight on a weekend, and so you can already see that this is culminating into a really bad idea to begin with. And uh, we parked in a parking lot that was adjacent to a strip club. So that, again, might have told you the sort of neighborhood we were in, and we went and we started walking the, the kind of the main strip of downtown, and we noticed that everything was either just kind of a bar, and we didn't want to be in that atmosphere, um, or, or it, they were already closed for the evening. And so we said, hey, let's just get back in the cars. We'll go back. There was eight of us total, and uh, let's just get back in the cars, and we'll go to, there was a Denny's off the highway, and we thought, well, just, they're open 24-7. We'll, we'll go there. So as we began to walk back, one of my uh, friends said, hey, let's cut through here. This is a shortcut. It'll kind of save us like a block. And uh, as we kind of went off the, the beaten path, the main area, uh, we started walking down a street that felt sketchy. And I started getting this like kind of electrical buzz that was, felt like God was saying, this is a truly terrible idea. And as I started feeling that, I looked to my left, and there was a, you know, one of those um, bus stop, uh, it's a bench and a little overhang type deals, and um, there was a guy, and he was uh, sitting, but he was like on his elbow, uh, leaning over, and he threw up on his own arm. And I thought, we definitely took the wrong turn. We definitely went the wrong, we're not moving towards good things. At that time, uh, two people really just appeared out of nowhere and started yelling at us and, and uh, uh, saying some really antig anti antagonizing things and instigating a reaction. Uh, about four of the guys started just kind of ignoring them and moving further ahead, and the four of us towards the back, uh, I was with my friend Grant, who's about six foot four, six foot five, very tall, lanky guy, and one of these guys just swings up as hard as he can and punches Grant right in the face. And I'm like, oh man, this, I want to be back with the homeless guy throwing up on his arm because he feels like the better option. And I literally took my wallet out and just held it out. And they walked by and I was like, I'm going to, 
I'm going to put that, I'm going to keep it for you because I know you're going to be coming around for that in a minute, so I'm going to keep this nice and safe right there. Uh, when the other four guys didn't give them the attention that they felt like they deserved, uh, they shot the gun in the air, and that definitely got everybody's attention. Uh, not only did they order us to get down on the ground, they first ordered us down a side alley, a dark alley between a bunch of tall buildings where we were definitely out of sight, where we definitely couldn't be seen, where the opportunity for help was greatly diminished. And they had us all face down on the pavement, and one by one they went around and took our wallets and took our money and took our jewelry and anything that looked like it had any value at all, why one of them just kept saying, shoot them, shoot one of them. And we really did in that night think that our lives were going to end. And they weren't scared to shoot the gun. They weren't scared to take on eight guys. That gun gave them a opportunity to do what they couldn't have done without it. And they successfully, efficiently, effectively separated us from a lot of things that we valued including our sense of safety and our dignity and our sense of security. That was an unbelievably memorable night because it was a traumatizing night. They used intimidation and surprise and force and violence and, most importantly, fear for our lives to do what they did, and that separate us from what we valued. Now, the Seven people in addition to me all learned something valuable that night, things we should have done differently, mistakes that we made, uh, an awareness about our, our environment and where we should have been in the first place and never should have, going down, should have been going downtown, all the things that we, in retrospect, just went, wow, this was a really, really bad idea. Uh, things that may be really evident and obvious to you already weren't to us as 20, 21-year-old guys, and we just thought there was safety in numbers. We thought with eight of us, nobody would try to take us on, and we were wrong. So maybe we know how to stay out of that situation, but I want you to imagine now a thief, though, who doesn't jump out and surprise you, who doesn't try to attack you using the element of surprise. They're smarter than that. They're more subtle than that. They're more patient ultimately more effective because they use different tactics to get to you in a way that enables them to steal from you without you even knowing it's happening. And the worst part is that you on some level are allowing them to do that. One of the great frauds that takes place in credit card fraud is that they'll make small charges, ones that don't really pop up on your radar. I mean, when there's a $500 charge or a $100 charge, you see that, but when it's $15 here and $20 there and $11 here, and they just consistently make those time and time again, and you don't cut, catch it for months on end, it becomes more difficult to establish to a credit card company that those weren't your charges, and it feels like in some way we've made stealing from us easier. So I want you to think about that in the context of what really matters in our life and how those things are getting separated from us. I mean, 
maybe we should be careful about identifying what really matters until a little bit later, but I want you to hold that concept in your head and focus more on how is it that someone can separate us from that which we care about, from that which we love, from that which is actually important, and us not even know that it's happening, and more importantly, that we are somehow allowing it to happen. So that's our conversation. Pull out your notes if you don't already have them out, and Open up your apps. By the way, in the next week or two, we're going to be introducing um, some great information. We're going to be uh, changing a lot of things, on, uh, including our app, and we'll get you more information on that. But open your app for now. I'm letting myself get robbed of what really matters when, number one, I get bad advice on who my enemies are. So when we finally got up off the ground, these two guys were gone. We started running and trying to get help, and eventually we ran far enough. You see, because they had smartly, wisely separated us from people, people that could help, the bright lights that would expose their crime, the opportunity to be heard by the police or anyone else that might have been watching, and they got us isolated. So we had to run a bit. We had to struggle to find someone who could help us, and eventually we ran up on police officers who were right there on the main strip, on the main drag, had already gotten the call that there was something happening and that we might have been on our way. So these officers began to take our eight separate accounts, and when they did, it became uncomfortable pretty quickly, at least for me it did, because the officer who was taking my statement happened to be black, and the first question he asked was, what did these guys look like? And I said, "Uh, it was two guys, uh, I'm just stalled already, and the guy says, were they white or were they black? And I said, you know, I think, I don't, you know, kind of, I'm, I'm thinking maybe, you know, I'm like really like, oh man, I don't want to imply anything in my answer and I'm not trying to be offensive and it just felt like there needed to be a better way other than just marking them as one or the other. But I will tell you this, that it happened to be one of the things that was most easily identified. It happened to be one thing that every single one of us agreed on. We agreed there were two of them, we agreed they were both male, and we agreed that they were black. The other details, what they were wearing, how old they were, what the gun looked like, the things that they said, what direction they went, all details that were just as important as the color of their skin, those were much harder to recall. And that bothered me. Maybe it shouldn't have bothered me, but it bothered me. Because our minds can be incredibly lazy. Our minds, studies show, want things 
to be as simple as possible. We want them to be black or white. We want them to be all or nothing. We want situations to be ones and zeros. We want binary. We want dichotomy in our thinking because, listen, we don't like complexity. We don't like complications. The simpler something is, the safer we feel about it. That's our minds. We love for things to be uncomplex, and we're comfortable with the way things already are. Listen, the reality is that most of us have very limited cultural and societal exposure. You know your culture and your ethnicity and your nationality. You know that most. You know your uh, political viewpoints or the ones that uh, you've grown up in or surrounded yourself with, the religious and moral context in which you see things. That's all familiar to you, and our mind does not like anything that pushes back on that and challenges things as they already are. And in reality, our mind likes to identify people very quickly as friend or foe, enemy or ally, because we want to know if we can let our guard down and be more of ourselves. We don't want to guard what we say. We don't want to watch what we say. We don't want to have to get uncomfortable when we're talking about something. So we like people who think like us, believe like us, act like us, and even look like us. And that's the way we think. Jesus, on the other hand, did not. He didn't think like that at all. He didn't see things in black and white, all or nothing, ones and zeros. And when it came to his enemies and his friends, he didn't use the same qualifiers that you and I do. He didn't use the same parameters to define those people. So listen to what it says in Mark 12, 13 through 17. This is a really cool story. Later, the Jewish leaders sent some Pharisees and some men from a group called the Herodians. And uh, I'll maybe pause right there. The Pharisees were a mostly religious group. They had lawful ties, and they were experts in the law uh, that, they were, um, that they were politically subject to, but they really wanted to uh, integrate that into the law of morality. And the Herodians were a group of, it was a sect of Jewish people who were loyal and faithful to Herod the Great, who was loyal and faithful to Caesar in Rome, okay? So they were a mostly political group of Jews. And, so I'll continue, sent them to Jesus, and they wanted to catch him saying something wrong. They went to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you're an honest man. You're not afraid of what others think about you. So they're doing some false flattery. And all people are the same to you. Listen to that. They recognize it and they repeat it back to Jesus. It's true of him or else he would have refuted it. And all people are the same to you. And you teach the truth about God's way. Tell us, though, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or not? But Jesus knew that these men were really trying to trick him. And he said, why are you trying to catch me saying something wrong? Bring me a silver coin, let me see it. And they gave Jesus a coin and he asked, whose picture is on the coin and whose name is written on it? And they answered, it is Caesar's picture and Caesar's name. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And the men were amazed at what Jesus said. So let me tell you what happened right here. 
the Jewish leaders, in an effort to trap Jesus into picking sides, into making things binary, into making things black or white, here's what they did. They pinned him against the religious leaders and against the political leaders and hoped that Jesus would say, Yes, you must pay taxes to Caesar because in doing so, he would have acknowledged that the Roman occupation and oppression of the Jewish people was right to do, and he would have given up all credibility with the people of Israel. Or he wanted them to hear, the Herodians to hear Jesus say, absolutely not, we should not pay an unjust tax to an unjust king over us. He has no right to rule over us. And then they would have believed that Jesus was there to start a political revolution. But Jesus would not let them do that. Jesus acknowledged that you could stay and remain subject to the authority of God without defying the authority of the government. That those two things could exist side by side. They weren't mutually exclusive. Jesus wanted to show them that you don't have to make an enemy of one group or the other. He refused to make an enemy where there wasn't an enemy. And I have to tell you, if there's ever been a time in history where people are calling you to choose one side or the other... They're choosing you to put your flag in the ground and declare who you stand for. Really what they want to know is, are you with us? Are you with them? And there are so many different camps that want your allegiance and your alliance. They want you to make enemies of who they've made enemies of. Jesus went out of his way to make the same point with the cultural diversity and discrimination that was happening at that time. Listen to what it says in John 4, 5 through 10. Eventually, Jesus came into the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son. These are, these are Jewish uh, uh, personalities that everyone knew, so it was worth mentioning. Uh, the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime. So I just want to say, already they're in enemy territory. The Samaritans were hated and despised by the Jews. Soon a Samaritan woman, it's interesting that there was a declaration of gender here, a Samaritan woman came and drew uh, to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone, another cultural taboo to be alone with a woman, especially a Samaritan woman at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. They considered them religiously, ethnically, morally, in every way despicable and unclean. She, she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. In case he was confused by that, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, I love this, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Jesus refused to make an enemy of a woman who was not his enemy because of her gender, or because of her ethnicity, or because of her reputation among the other Jews. Jesus was considered a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, a keeper of the law. 
The Bible says that he was innocent in all matters of the law. He never broke the law. He knew the law. He taught the law. He believed in it. And yet he refused to let them decide what he thought about this woman. He didn't let cultural abnormalities keep him from speaking to her. Instead, listen, he offered to her what others thought she was not worthy to have, the gift of life. What he came to offer everybody. And church, we have to do a better job of being the kind of people who are at wells, waiting, engaging, talking, connecting, loving, showing compassion, and offering the gift of life to everyone, no matter what we're told to believe about them. Amen? I'm going to tell you that I grew up in a church far more, I'm reluctant to use the word conservative, maybe I should say a lot more religious and a lot more dogmatic and a lot more legalistic than our church here. And I had ingrained in me what I should think about people. And I'll tell you that I have had to make it really the intentionality of my walk with Christ to listen to his voice over the voice of people that I loved and trusted and taught me and preached to me and and pastored me and, and educated me because there were a lot of those voices and they were very, very convincing. And I'm telling you, there's going to be some cognitive dissonance when you hear that you're not supposed to be making enemies of anyone. People can make enemies of us. We can't make enemies of anyone. We'll talk about that in just a second because Ephesians 6.12 says this, our fight is not against people on earth. Can I say that again? Oh, can God say that again? Our fight is not against people on earth, but against rulers and authorities and the powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world, and that's heavenly lowercase, that means the celestial world, the, the spiritual world. So if it's worth repeating just one more time, we, 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 our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not people. Second is this, I'm letting myself get robbed of what really matters when I become an accomplice in my own loss. Listen, when the Bible says that our enemy is spiritual and not flesh and blood, it doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't use flesh and blood to accomplish his purposes. Um, As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to expose that we can, in our own flesh and blood, become accomplices in getting robbed of what actually matters. We start believing we're the good guys in the story instead of understanding that we're acting as the villain. We think we're helping people find Christ when in actuality we're separating people further from Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in this tirade against these religious leaders, these Pharisees. It's worth reading the whole chapter because I'm only picking out one section in which he just lays into the religious leaders of the time. He says, you're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. I mean, I can't even tell you the anger and the malice they must have felt at him at the time. 
You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and flowers bright, but six feet down, it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. He's describing people. People look at you and think you're the saints, but beneath the skin, you're total frauds. A good, tough crowd. I got to tell you, though, it's worth reading what Jesus says because what he's really describing is kind of this spiritual weekend at Bernie's. Right? Where there's this effort to keep the hands waving and the, the smile and the sunglasses and He's in the boat jet skiing or skiing, water skiing with everyone, and he's at the party, and there's this real effort to keep this dead thing looking alive, but the reality is it's all a fraud. It's all deceit. And what Jesus is really describing is, listen, the behavior, the pretending, the acting holy, doing things that make us look good, but we aren't good. One illustration Jesus uses is he says, listen, you guys are amazing on tithing. He says, you're so good about tithing that you'll actually clip these very small uh, uh, herbs and, 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 and these little tiny plants and you'll literally scrape off 10% and you'll give that in the offering. You'll tithe down to the smallest fraction Good for you, you should keep doing that, but you seem to miss the more important thing of being compassionate and kind and caring about people and doing what really matters and offering people life. You seem to love holding the law over people and shaming people and condemning people. And he's saying you've completely missed the heart of God while you're doing these very legalistic things that make you feel like you're pleasing God. Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says this. It's absolutely clear that God has called you to this free life, a life of grace. You're not bound by the law. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want and destroy your freedom. Don't move on just yet. This is an admonition. This is a calling to the church to not use our freedom and grace to then turn around and abuse people in their captivity. Those who are not yet free or those who we don't think are as free as us or for those who we think didn't get freedom the right way or they're disqualified from freedom. Listen to what he goes on to say. Rather use your freedom to serve one another in love. The shift is clear. It's about how we treat each other. That's how freedom grows for Everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence, love others as you love yourself. That's, not an act, or that's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out, in no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other, and where will your precious freedom be then? Paul's admonition to the church is you're free of the law, so why would you then go and use religiosity and dogma and, and, and legalism to beat up on people? Why would you try to shame them? Why would you try to use your freedom to keep somebody else in captivity? Pull them out. That's what true freedom looks like. That's how true freedom grows. Serve one another. Love each other. And then finally is this. I put my trust, I'm letting myself get robbed of what really matters when I put my trust in the wrong things to protect the wrong things. I put my trust in the wrong things to protect the wrong things. Next week, 
is the second part of this message on Mother's Day, and I'm going to talk about what really mattered to Jesus and therefore what's really, really valuable. Several years ago, though, we had a, a building. It's now Emmaus's, uh, Emmaus Church's building. It's the downtown theater on Lincoln Boulevard. And uh, there was a lot of uh, mischievousness, we'll say, that happened in the alley behind the church. And so as a result, we put in a camera system, and we had cameras at every exit and every door and throughout the building, and that helped us sort of uh, hopefully catch some people doing some stuff. And uh, I had come in one day and saw that uh, the camera at the back left door had been completely ripped off the building. And um, I was like, oh, okay. So we went to the DVR, and we just rewound until we saw activity there, and we saw this guy jumping up. Just face clear as day, just looking into the camera, jumping up and ripping the camera off the building. And so we copied that onto a thumb drive and we made an email and we sent it to the police department and we followed up and kind of put pressure on them to do something about it. And finally they did. And they went to this man's house. They tracked him down. They knew who he was. And they pull up and uh, he was out in the front. And uh, as they looked up, they saw a camera that looked very much like the camera that was missing from the theater. And uh, the cop says, hey, what do, you, what do you got a camera up there for? And he said, because I don't want people stealing my stuff. <laughs> and the cop says, oh, yeah? Like the way you stole the camera from the church? And he was outraged and indignant and furious and declaring his innocence. And then the cop pulled up the video and said, isn't that you right there? I mean, zoomed in on his face. And the guy said, oh, I was drunk. I'm sorry. Uh, the point I'm trying to make with that story, if there is a point... <laughs> is we often put our trust in the wrong things to keep us safe. See, I've got a ring, like a lot of you probably do, a ring doorbell or some other brand of that, and there's uh, ring cameras around my house, and I get notifications through the Ring app of things that have happened in the neighborhood. Somebody's bike got stolen, porch pirates took somebody's Amazon uh, package off the front porch, um, uh, vandalism, somebody's vehicle getting broken into. But here's what I've always kind of thought is, huh, interesting. I'm getting the video after the things already happened. It doesn't stop anything from happening. It just records what's happening. And it's astonishing at how little can be done with that and how few leads come out of that. And I mean, we just happened to get lucky because we had a really not smart drunk guy that just looked straight into the camera. But the point is, the cameras don't make us safer for the most part because what's happened has already happened, right? And there's a lot of things in our world that we trust for our finances, for our happiness, to make us feel safer about our future, about this world that seems to be slipping through our fingers. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And this is happening. And there's Budweiser and there's things and there's, and we just 
follow the dialogue that's put out in front of us. We follow the narrative. And it really is unbearably distracting from what really, really matters. It makes us feel unsafe, and so we think we need to turn to elections to make us feel safer and new laws to make us feel safer and more morality in our world to make us feel safer and and banning things to make us feel safer. And Psalms 118, 8 through 9 says this, it's better to trust the Lord for protection than to trust anyone else, including strong leaders. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to really lock yourselves into the idea of trying to answer this honestly. If I was to hook you up to a polygraph machine and and try to guarantee your honesty, would you say that you put your trust more in God or the people that you believe are in office? And the reason I ask that is because It can really be measured by how often you talk about one over the other. And what you post on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the videos you're making on TikTok about what you're upset about versus the time you spend actually praying. Would you say that you trust God or the money that you make and save and spend? I will tell you I already know the answer to that because I can see the struggle some people have that many people have in trusting God with their finances because they withhold obedience in the name of I can't afford to because if I do this, then this need doesn't get met and this bill doesn't get paid. You trust God or the emotion that you feel when you see something that evokes emotion or somebody says something that evokes emotion or somebody does something that evokes emotion out of you is the first thing you think is, God's on the throne. It's all okay. God's on the throne. Or do you think you need to react somehow? You trust the facts of Scripture that's thousands of years old or a post with some article that you just read five minutes ago on social media? Do you trust God's plan more or your plan? That's easily measurable too and Asking the question, did you pray about what you were supposed to do today and ask God to lead you in your decision-making and guide you in your reactions and in your thoughts and in the words that you say and what you do? Or did you just get up and just be you and hope that you led you to the best possible place? We tend to trust fear more than God when it comes to the storms in our life. The disciples were a perfect example. They were with Jesus all the time, and yet they were angry at him because of their fear. Why wasn't Jesus taking the storm as seriously as they were? Why wasn't he doing anything? Why did he even let it happen? We trust our personal experiences and our knowledge of past things that have happened and even other people's story to help us chart the plan of our lives, what we will and won't do, the risk we will and won't take, the things we will and won't say in front of other people because at least we know our plan rather than God who doesn't always share what he's planning on doing. We'd rather follow a bad plan that we know than God's 
perfect plan that we don't. And we do all of that because we're simply suspicious that God doesn't value what we value. That God doesn't treasure the things in our life like we treasure the things in our life. But really what we're doing is we're going around and we're stealing security cameras and we're putting them around our lives in the hope that these stolen cameras from our experiences, from other people's stories, from news articles and and from things that pop up on social media, we're taking all of those things, our emotions and whatever we have to make us feel safer and it really doesn't do anything. And then we get mad at God because he doesn't bless our dumb ideas. Right? When he calls us out on stealing our cameras. So I'm going to leave you with this in Proverbs 3, 4 through 6. It says, if you want favor with both God and men and a reputation for good judgment and common sense, then just trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. In everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. If we believed that all the time, can you imagine how much better we'd be at retaining what really matters in our life instead of being accomplices and letting the enemy separate us from good things? Because we believe things and we say things and we react to things And we get separated. The enemy's doing it to us and we don't even know that it's happening to us and we're just sort of complying and allowing it to happen. And the Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things and when you feel something, I can tell you it's almost certainly wrong. Can I tell you when you'll know it's the voice of God when it goes against what you want to do? The Lord told me I should really be giving towards uh, you know, the, the, the church going into a new building and I just don't know if it's God or not. I just, I feel it. I, I'm hearing it, but I just, I really want to know it's God. Yeah, it's of course God. Would you normally want to do that? No, none of us would normally want to do that. There's some things that are just inherently good that it is God and you don't need to pray about it because it goes contrary to our selfish nature. Trust God always. Don't ever trust yourself unless, of course, what you're thinking lines perfectly up with his word. And then you go, ah, that sounds like God, not like me. I don't think like that. That's a God thought. How amazing I'm having that. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to run with that. And that helps us hold on to what really matters in our life, what really, really matters in our life. And we'll talk about that next week. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I thank you for hanging in there with me. We start a little later and I want just a couple minutes longer. God, here's my prayer for every person. I don't need anybody to raise their hand or, or to respond. I, 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 what I need for all of us to do is just really settle into the truth that we are unwitting and unknowing sometimes co-conspirators with the enemy and letting things happen in our life, letting things get separated from us our heads down instead of looking it up looking up we 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 aren't aware of our surroundings our spiritual surround we're so distracted by media and social media and events and things happening in society and culture it's got us all worked up and we just feel so much that it's 
nearly impossible for us to even sense that the enemy is nearby seeking whom he may devour. Doesn't even need to pop out of the dark. Doesn't even need to startle us. We wouldn't recognize him even if he did because we're so distracted by so many other things. And we've surrounded ourselves with all these fake security cameras that make us feel safer, but it's just silliness. It's just pride, God, that keeps us from recognizing that we don't know the path, we don't know the truth, we don't know the way, but you do. You see 10 moves ahead and you're guiding and steering us, but we are so easily distracted. God, help us. Help us. Help us to trust you. Stop trusting what leads us down dark alleys and gets us separated from what really matters. Praying for our church, God, in these conversations that will happen in the near future about a possible home for us, that those go with your favor and your grace, and you would, you would protect us from a bad decision. You'd protect us from a bad lease. You'd protect us from a bad building. You'd protect us from a bad future, God. Even if we want it, we want, more importantly, we want what you want and what you've prepared for us. And God, if it's not time, then protect us from anything that would move us out of your will. Keep us right in the center of what pleases you. In Jesus' name, everybody said a big amen.